our Bibles now to Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, Moses relates how sin was not confined to the original couple, but spread not only to their immediate offspring, but also to the society that was made up of their more distant progeny. In this sense, sin was like a malignant cancer, spreading far beyond the original organ affected to more remote parts of the body. Just as the effects of the spread of cancer can be harmful to the body, to say the least, the spread of sin throughout the human race would prove destructive. Indeed, sin is not benign. But there's also an important subplot to Genesis chapter 4, a subplot if you will, That being the concept of appropriate worship. We'll introduce this subplot this week, but we'll really cover that next week. So this is a two-parter. If you want to get the whole thing, you've got to come back next week. But I think it'll be worth your time. Read along with me in the first 17 verses of chapter 4. We'll actually only cover the first 8 today, but I wanted you to get the first 17 so we can have the flavor of what's going on here. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said... I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering uh, to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain... And for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, And killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from the face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. He built a city and called the name of his city Enoch after the name of his son. Sin is not benign. The description of sin that we see in this chapter is set in the context of worship. In this narrative, we find the Lord accepting the offering of one brother and rejecting the offering of another. 
many have understood the acceptance of Abel's offering to be because it was a blood offering, and the rejection of Cain's offering to be because it was from the ground. While that sounds plausible on the surface, there's really something else, something much more important going on here. Look at verse 1 again. Now the man, that's Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. You know, sometimes in the past I had a difficult to remember which one was which. Was Cain the good one or the, was Abel the best? You know, just remember this, raising Cain. Cain was, the, the Cain was not the one that turned out to be the good one. But we see here uh, Adam and Eve having relations. The text literal says, literally says that the man knew his wife. This is idiomatic of the most intimate, the most intimate of personal interaction. The wording of the next phrase, though, is more ambiguous and a little bit problematic. Notice that the phrase, at least in my Bible, it should be in yours too, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. In most of your Bibles, that, that phrase, with the help of, should be in italics, uh, indicating that the words there are not found in the original, but there probably was a legitimate reason for inserting them. Every time you see something in italics in your, in your Bible, don't immediately scream heresy on the part of the interpreters. It's usually something that's very legitimate. The, the sentence could read, just like the New American Standard and most of your Bibles have in front of you, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Or it could just as legitimately be translated, I have gotten a man, comma, the Lord. could just as easily be translated that way. If translated with the help of, it could point to the fact that Eve had learned her lesson. And she was speaking from a position of humility. It could be referring to that. If, on the other hand, it is properly translated, I have gotten a man, the Lord, it either points to a bit of pride on Eve's part, or an understanding, or probably, I guess, a misunderstanding on her part, that the son that she just bore was the promised seed of the woman. Now, it's actually this second scenario that most accurately fits this passage, both the grammar and the flow of the passage. You see, it wouldn't have been that unreasonable in Eve's situation to think that, would it? She had been promised in Genesis 3.15 that one of her offspring, now she had no offspring at that point, there were no offspring at that point, it was a totally new concept for her, but that one of her offspring would be ultimately good and would ultimately conquer evil. Now, we know that that offspring is Jesus Christ, but Eve didn't know that. So who else would she suspect that it would have been other than Cain? So it's not that unreasonable for her to say something like this. She had no idea that the promised seed of the woman, who would ultimately be good, and that would ultimately conquer evil, would be Jesus of Nazareth, born many, many millennia later. Over the course of this chapter, and actually it doesn't take us very long, does it? We find out that Cain is anything but the seed of the woman that was promised. He's anything but ultimately good. He's a rebeller against God, just like Adam and Eve were. And he's in no better position to purchase the salvation for everybody that's ever going to live than Adam and Eve themselves were. We find that out. In verse 2, And again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Both boys, 
uh, actually men, both of these men, there's been some time that has passed, have legitimate occupations. Now, that's critical for understanding what's going on with regard to the subplot, anyway. Both of the occupations were legitimate. It was legitimate to tend the flocks, but it was every bit as legitimate to till the ground. One occupation was not in and of itself more legit than the other. Cain's may be, in a sense, a little bit more closely tied in with the curse on the ground than Abel's, but but uh, both, both had mandates to do what they did, and so the activities were legitimate. That's not the problem. That's a misunderstanding. Now, some of your study Bibles might mention that that's the problem. That is not the problem. Both occupations were legitimately functioning at that time. With the birth of Abel and the account that follows, we observe this prophesied battle between good and evil, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent beginning to materialize. And here's where it comes on fast. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. The text goes on to tell us that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now this is the dicey part of this passage. This is the confusing part. Why The text doesn't tell us in the beginning, but we'll find out very quickly, I think, here. Why does, does God have regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's offering? Now, the first thing people propose, and historically it has been proposed many times, is that the reason he had regard for Abel's offering is that Abel's offering was a blood offering. And Cain's offering was not a blood offering. Cain's offering was a grain offering, an offering from something from the ground. But that's, that's an inaccurate understanding of this passage because, you see, both offerings are identified by the same Hebrew term, which means a legitimate offering in the Levitical system. No, the problem is not the identity of the offerings, but the problem is in the attitude of the worshiper that brought the offerings. This is, this is where it's huge. This is where there will be a massive application to us when it comes to our worship. What do we bring God from our attitude? You see, Cain couldn't bring something of the flocks. He didn't have any flocks. What, he brought what he had. But the text tells us he brought some of what he had. But did you notice what Abel brought? Abel brought the best of what he had. When these two men came to worship, one of them just brought something. But the other one, the text goes out of its way to tell us that Abel brought the best of what he had. That's the rub. That's why God respected, that's why the Lord respected Abel's offering, but did not have regard for Cain's. Because Cain just showed up. And don't we do that so many times when we worship, either corporately or privately? It's, well, it's, it's 8.30 in the morning, it's time for me to read my Bible. You know, well, sometimes we read it thoughtfully, and we read it carefully, and, and we read it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's a worshipful experience. Sometimes we just turn the pages hoping to get through so we can get to work on time. You see what I mean? There's one offering. It's the same function, but one offering is acceptable to God and another one is not. Some of us bring some of our resources. Some of us bring the first fruit of our resources. Some of us just bring a little bit of energy when we come to worship. Others of us have stayed up, uh, and, and sometimes people stay up till 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning on Saturday night and think they're going to come and worship well on Sunday morning. You're not going to as a habit. You're not going to. 
Others plan on, su- on su- Saturday afternoon, okay, this is what I'm going to wear. I want to make sure I get to bed by this time. I want to make sure I have a good breakfast tomorrow so I can worship well, so that I can bring the best. That's the difference. It has nothing to do with the fact that one's a grain and one's a blood offering. That, that's a total misunderstanding of this passage. It has to do with the attitude of the offerer, the attitude of the worshiper. One brought the best, one just brought some of, sold. So it's the quality of the offerings. The quality of the offerings reflect the attitude of the worshiper, just like they do with us. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, you see, you or I may not be able to look at someone else's offering and have a clue as to whether or not it's acceptable. You might think, well, good night. That seemed great to me. That man, that's an awful big check they put in the offering plate. I don't, know if that was, I don't know if that was acceptable to the Lord or not. I don't know what their attitude was when they gave it. I have no idea. The Lord only knows because the Lord looks at our hearts when we worship. So that's part of the subplot here. But now back to the main plot, the idea of the fact that sin is not benign. Sin is like a malignant cancer that spreads and destroys everything in its path if it's not treated. The beauty of this is sin, like some cancers, is treatable, but only God's way. The Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offerings he had no regards. Now, notice too, Abel and his offering were, were very closely related to one another. Because Abel's attitude was reflected in his offering. It's not that they're one in their same and one in the same, but they're real close. It's a little scary then, isn't it? If the Lord looks at us by the way that we make our offerings to Him. And I'm not talking about just money. You're not going to get off that easy. None of us get off that easy. This is, this is the entirety of our life. Our lives are an offering to God. And, and how good of an offering are we giving Him? Are we just giving Him the leftovers? I'm done. I'm done now. You can have it. Are we giving Him the best? The best of our life. We can fool our fellow man, but we cannot fool God when it comes to acceptable offerings. Now, here's the problem. Cain's offering wasn't accepted. Now, without going into what the text says for just a moment, what would you have hoped that Cain would have done? Well, we would hope that once the Lord didn't accept his offering, Cain would have been humble enough to go say, Lord, I want to do better. I, I ask your forgiveness that I brought an offering that wasn't sufficient. I admit that my attitude wasn't in it, and, and I ask your forgiveness. But that's not what we see. It could have gone that way. You see, all of us come upon many, many crossroads in our lives where we have to make that decision. We've rebelled. All of us have rebelled against God. Every single person in this room has done it multiple times. So we're all on the same footing there. But what happens when we rebel? Do we continue in rebellion? Or do we come to that crossroads and say, Father, I have sinned. What I did was wrong. And repent of that and get back into fellowship with God. You see, that's where we have to look at it. I'm talking about as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in rebellion and if you never trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, then the issue for you is faith alone in Christ alone. But I'm talking to people this morning who are already believers. How do we handle that? Well, Cain did not do well. He became very angry and his countenance fell. Do you see what he did? Do you see? The Lord evaluated his offering and instead of humbly falling to his knees and say, Lord, forgive me. He got angry with God. Bad move, Cain. Bad move. You see, sin has just spread. 
It just went from one organ to another like a cancer. It just spread. And it it wasn't treated. And this is bad. Cain's response to God's evaluation further identifies him with the seed of the serpent. He's not the seed of the woman. We know right now he's not the seed of the woman. Actually, we knew a, a couple words before when the text tells us that the Lord didn't have any regard for his offering. That gives us a clue. But now we know for sure because the seed of the woman is not going to become angry with God. That's inappropriate. His anger at his creator is sinful and unacceptable. It is not as though God looks at Cain and says, Hey, listen, son, I understand why you're angry. You know, I know it, it happens all the time, you know, when I disregard someone's offering. But, could, you know, could you please just kind of cut me some slack and get over it? That's how some parents would do nowadays. That's not the way God does. No, this is Cain's problem. This is not God's problem. This is Cain's problem. I want you to notice, too, that the facial expressions here reflected what was in his soul. What was in his soul came out in the facial expressions of the body. The response, which was not what would have been expected from a faithful believer, then prompts a warning from God himself. But I I want you to watch this. Anger with the Lord is a sinful response. I don't know where people, even some very respected theologians and pastors, get the idea that anger with God is acceptable under certain situations. It is not. It has never been and never will be. Confusion, yes. To be perplexed, yes. The the prophets were perplexed all the time. Habakkuk, how long, O Lord, will you allow this to go on? He was perplexed, but he wasn't angry with God. You see, if we're angry with God, what are we implying? We're implying that God did something wrong to me or wrong to someone else. That's why we become angry. I become angry if someone cuts me off in traffic, not if someone lets me in. You're implying when you're angry that somebody did something wrong. And if you're angry with the Creator of the universe, what are you thinking? That's irrationality to the maximum. That's insanity. Now, human beings all have a tendency, just like Cain, to do it. So I'm not talking about you. Nobody's told me anything about you. So just relax for a second. But anger with God is a sin. Don't do it. I don't care who gets up here and tells you it's okay. Right here it tells you it's not. It's not the appropriate response. Confession and repentance was the appropriate response. When God corrects us, we should confess and repent. When things don't go our way, we should realize that God loves us. And he has a perfect plan for us. And he he has more information than we do. Yes, maybe I didn't get that job that I wanted. Maybe that investment didn't come through like I wanted it to. Maybe she doesn't love me anymore. To get angry with God is insanity. To realize that God loves you and he's providentially working out these things in the best possible way, that's faith. So we can either function in sin and insanity or in faith. One or the other. Now, you can't do both. We need to be very, very careful with this. And again, confusion, yes. Believers are confused all the time. I'm confused. You're confused. We're all confused all the time with how God works his plan out. And it's okay to say, Lord, I don't understand this. Lord, I'm doing my best to please you. Lord, is there some unconfessed sin in my life? 
that I need to bring before you. Show me. But to become angry with him is not the appropriate response. Because anger with God implies that God did something wrong. And that, my friends, is blasphemy. So you can take the next step logically, can't you? And, to, and, re, and realize that anger with God is blasphemy. We need to be very, very careful with that. Confess it and repent it. Repent of it if that's a problem. Sin is crouching at the door, the text goes on to say, and its desire is for you. You see, the Lord in grace approaches Cain, just like he did Adam and Eve. He's going to actually going to approach Cain another time, and he's going to talk to, talk to him in almost the same words that, that he speaks to Eve. But here he comes to Cain with a warning. That's a stern warning. It's not one of those that's okay what you did. But he, he confronts Cain. Why are you angry, Cain? Why are you so angry? And why is your countenance falling? Why, is your, why are your facial expressions expressing this anger? Why is that? And the Lord goes on to tell him, listen, if you do the right thing, your, your countenance is going to be lifted up. Your soul is going to be calmed. It's difficult to have the peace of God that passes all understanding when we're angry. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way for me. I've got to get unmad before I can have the peace of God that passes all understanding. This doesn't usually work that way. And I know there's a thing called righteous indignation, but don't try that at home. It seldom ever works. <laughs> I've tried it a whole bunch of times, and I always end up in sin one way or the other. So. But the Lord tells him, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Which is a reflection of what's going on in his soul. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you shall, or you must, master it. Its desire is for you. This is the same word that we encountered in the previous chapter when God was speaking the oracle against the woman. Do you remember that? Had a little fun with it. A lot of people laughed, but it was a very serious topic, actually. In the middle of the oracle against the woman, God tells Eve, your desire shall be for your husband. Now, we learned when we were in that chapter, that's not a positive thing. That's not this silly notion that even though childbirth is going to be painful, the woman will have this insatiable desire to have intimacy with her husband. That's not the way it works, and that's not good grammar either. That is taken from an understanding of the term that comes all the way down to, to Song of Solomon. But we have the term used here as well, and we see in chapter 4, it's not a positive term here at all. So that's why we understood chapter 3 in the way we did. Actually, there's going to be a couple words that are exactly identical. I think so this word desire is identical to what we saw in Genesis 3:16. Sin must be mastered. Or it's going to master you. This is another interesting parallel. This is the term mashal. And you remember in the oracle against the woman, not the way it should be, but the way it's going to be? That the husband is going to mashal over the woman. He's going to rule over the woman. He's going to master the woman, at least in his sinful condition, when he's not walking in fellowship with God. Well, here, sin is going to do that to us. Sin is going to mashal us. So listen, either we mashal it, either we master it, either we dominate it, or it's going to dominate us. It's not a neutral thing. Sin is not benign. Sin is very serious. We master it or it's going to master us. We dominate it or it's going to dominate us. Sin is not to be taken lightly. Sin is not to be toyed with. You don't stick your hand in a tiger's cage. At least you don't stick your hand in a tiger's cage and expect anything good to happen. As a result of that... You remember Karen Eretz? Two years ago, you probably heard this story. It was all over the, the world with regard to news agencies. Two years ago in Belgium, 
This was a woman who was one of these special people. She loved animals. She just loved animals, especially cheetahs. You know, years ago there was that, that film Born Free where that, that lady and that man loved the, the lions. Well, this was like that lady, but she loved cheetahs. She loved cheetahs so much that she adopted one of the cheetahs in the Belgian zoo. They named it Bongo. And she paid for Bongo's food. Every single week she would bring a check and she would pay for Bongo's food and she adopted these cheetahs. Bongo wasn't the only cheetah in this cage, but that was her cheetah, Bongo. And then one day Karen decided she'd do something that turned out not to be very smart. And she hid out in the zoo to the zoo had closed. And somehow, authorities found out later, she had stolen a key to the cheetah cage. And she thought that she would go and commune with Bongo and his buddies. And you know what happened if you remember the story. Bongo ate her. And it's not very nice. Because, because that's what happens when you go commune with cheetahs. That's not the way things were meant to be. Bongo, there's one, one news agency wrote, actually one of the people that worked at the zoo that knew her said, Bongo betrayed her trust. <laughs> no, Bongo was a wild cheetah, and that's what cheetahs do. And that's what sin does. It's not, it's not when bad things happen that sin has betrayed your trust. Sin is going to maul you. Sin is going to destroy you. It's going to dominate you. It's going to master you unless you take it seriously. That's what we have to do. We must take it seriously. Don't get into the cage. We must, we must not fear it, but we must respect it. And we must say, that's not the way we want to go. But see, everybody, all of us, all of us as human beings, we look at it and we see sin looks lovely. So, and we don't want to jump in. It's like a river. We don't want to jump all the way in it, do we? No, because we know that would be wrong. But we won't want to get a little taste of it, like a piece of good cheesecake with strawberries on top of it and a little graham cracker crust on the bottom. And we say, I know that's not on my diet. I ought not to eat that. If you're on Weight Watchers, about 13 points. It's like, it's like for the whole day. I just betrayed myself, but I know exactly how many points are in a piece of cheesecake. But as soon as you have the first bite, you think you're going to stop there? I don't. I'll go a cheesecake and a half if that's what it takes. It's just difficult to do. It's like my mom's chocolate chip cookies. You think you just can't eat one Lay's potato chip. I can't eat just one of those cookies. So sometimes it's better for me to stay away from them altogether if I'm in that mode. Now, that's, I'm not equating them with sin, of course. You can keep making them if you want. But here's the idea. Don't get into that cheetah cage, my friends. It's not going to work out the way you want to. You can't commune with a cheetah, and you can't commune with sin. It will dominate you. It will master you. It will devour you. It will devour you. For the, for the revelation in the Scriptures will be revealed that sin will never be removed as an entity until we're in heaven with the Lord. But through the indwelling Holy Spirit... Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can act consistently with who we are in Christ. It is possible to do that. Because of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can say no to sin. It is possible. Now, you can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit's ministry. You remember Paul's message in Romans chapter 6 through 8? We studied it some time ago. But you remember in chapter 6, Paul is telling all of us that we have the responsibility to say no to sin? 
in, in one sentence. That's really what chapter 6 is about. I have the responsibility to say no to sin. But remember chapter 7? Even though I have that responsibility, Paul says, basically, even though I have that responsibility to say no to sin, oftentimes I don't say no to sin. And then chapter 8, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, probably a chapter that says as much about the Holy Spirit as any other chapter in the Bible, says the way, I have good news for you, Paul says, the way that you can say no to sin is through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's how we have the ability to say no to sin, not because of our own flesh, but because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's an interesting irony here, at least it's interesting to me, that while Eve had to be talked into her sin by the serpent, Cain couldn't be talked out of his sin by the Creator. Well, it doesn't end well. Cain decides not to repent, confess and repent, and master sin. He stays on that path. I'm assuming, thinking he can handle it, but he can't. And you see where sin ends up. Now, I'm not saying every sin ends up this way. I'm not saying if you travel in 55 or 56 and in 55, you're going to end up murdering someone. I'm not saying that at all. Now, your wife may murder you if you're going 65 and a 35. She might, but, but I'm not saying that you're going to do that. I'm not saying all sin leads to this, but this is where it led to with him. In verse 8, And Cain told Abel his brother. Apparently he has a conversation with him about what's going on here. And, and then it came about, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Cain does not heed the Lord's warning. And he allows his anger to boil over in a murderous rage. Sin is not benign. Cain's answer to the Lord is not recorded here in verse 7. At least it's not recorded in words, but it's recorded in deeds, isn't it? We know that Cain rejected the Lord's warning. The murder was premeditated, and it was calculated. I want you to think about this for a moment, though. It was also irrational. Who was Cain mad at? He wasn't mad at Abel. He had no reason. Abel hadn't done anything. He was mad at God. So he took it out on Abel. That happens to a lot of human beings, too. Happens to a lot of times. At least nothing that, nothing's ever recorded that Abel did anything to hurt Cain. Cain's mad at God. Cain's angry with God. And he acts in a jealous rage against his brother. Remember, sin is crouching at the door like a tiger, like a cheetah. And its desire is for you, not in a good way. It wants to master you, devour you. Cain did not take it seriously. Now, murder is an irrational act. In my view, all murder is an irrational act. But by very definition, the rational thing to do, the reasonable thing to do, would have been to follow the pattern of his parents and confess his irrational anger with God and bring a better attitude and worship next time. That's the great thing about God. If we just confess it, there's a next time. At least most of the time. There's a next time. But that's not what Cain did. Cain refused to confess and repent. And instead, moved deeper into sin. Cain went into the cheetah cage. And Cain got mauled. As we, as believers, we have a choice that is ever before us. We have a responsibility to say no to sin. We have an understanding that sin is crouching at the door 
and will devour us if we take it lightly. And we also have the indwelling Holy Spirit, which enables us to confess our sin and to repent of it. So the challenge for today, for those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, is what are we going to do? I dare say, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb, that all of us are going to sin sometime today, perhaps several times. Now, you have a choice to make when that happens, and you, you certainly will recognize when it happens. You can ignore that, and you can move deeper into sin with all of its destructiveness. Or you can immediately go to God and confess that sin and repent of it and take advantage of the gracious offering that God has given us. What are we going to do? Stay out of the cheetah cage, my friends. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for today and for the worship that we've been able to enjoy. We thank you for this very blunt but very serious message that sin is a malignancy, that we shouldn't take it lightly, that its desire is to devour us, to conquer us, to dominate us. Father, help us through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit to master sin. And we know that they won't be mastered in its entirety until we are in glory with you. But Father, help us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin. We know we are able to do that. And when we don't, Father, help us to be quick to confess, quick to repent, and quick to get back on the right track. And Father, we'll ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.